You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Carrie Nadeau, who heads up the Center for Allergies and Asthma Research at Stanford University. And I think you have a couple other affiliations down there at Stanford. And you're also the author of this book I have here, The End of uh, Food Allergy, featuring immunotherapy, the first program to prevent and reverse a 21st century epidemic. And you are a practitioner and you're really writing about the policies and practices and treatments that you have been pioneering at Stanford around food allergies. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Greg. I appreciate it. Now, maybe we should start by talking about this epidemic of food allergies. Let's diagnose the problem before we jump into solutions, figure out what exactly is the nature of the problem and kind of, you know, where does it come from, right? If you're going to think about remedies, you got to think about causation. And so I guess the, the first two things would be to talk about, right, you know, what food allergy is, the extent of the problem, and the extent to which this is a, a recent uh, phenomenon, right? I always, whenever we hear about things like the epidemic of ADHD, the epidemic of autism, the epidemic of, of concussions, you know, we're always stuck with the data issue, right? I mean, people weren't tracking these things and, and weren't as, as aware of them or as sensitive to them as they were in the past. I'd love to kind of tackle that issue of how we know this is a phenomenon that's been on the rise and and the extent to which it's a phenomenon that is more highly concentrated in, I guess, the, the Western and more, more developed world. So maybe let's start by, you know, what exactly is a food allergy and how is it different from, say, a food intolerance or food dislike? Yes. Yeah. Food allergy is where if you eat any dose of the food, any amount of the food, within two hours, you're going to get a hive or an itchy throat or abdominal pain, or vomiting, or wheezing, or a blood pressure drop. If you have a rash from food within two hours and it itches, then you know that's a food allergy. Many people have food intolerances, like you mentioned, and food sensitivities where they can have a food and maybe eight hours later they get some bloating, they might get a headache. That is not a food allergy. In fact, any food that causes a headache is not a food allergy. So importantly is that it has to happen within about two hours after eating the substance. And with food allergies, it's a disease in which any time you take that food, you could have a different reaction, but you're going to have an allergic reaction. And with food sensitivities, it can vary. If you have more of something, your food sensitivities could get worse. But any hour, you could have food sensitivities within eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, even a day after that food. But with food allergy, it has to have within about two hours of eating the food. And it's not associated with headache. And it's not associated with a lot of other issues like bloating. Bloating is food sensitivities, not food allergy. So that's the difference. And we make that very importantly defined in the book, but also when I talk to my patients, adults or children or parents, we need to make sure we define it. Just like you're saying, Greg, we need to know what we're diagnosing before we talk about what caused it. Now, is that because those other things don't involve the immune system, right? So the allergy, of course, is necessarily involving the, an immunological reaction, right? They don't involve a part of the immune system. You're absolutely right. 
So the part of the immune system that the food allergies involved, it involves this molecule called IgE. And IgE is kind of like the match that lights the fire behind those potent allergies. IgE is involved in drug allergies. It's involved in cat, dog, insect allergies. So that's the molecule that is kind of the fire starter. In other sensitivities and intolerance or like celiac disease, that's another part of the immune system. Our immune system is huge. So, but the problem with the allergic immune system is it is very fast. And within six seconds to six minutes, you can have some very severe reactions. So that's why we take it so seriously. Maybe we can back up and, and talk about the immune system in general, right? Because, you know, I've always thought of the immune system as being the me, not me system, right? The, the system where the body identifies something as being a foreign protein, right? And, and then, or potentially hazardous or dangerous foreign protein, and then attacks it, right? And so how does the body know what constitutes a threat and, and what doesn't? Great point. Typically, the immune system is supposed to decide self versus non-self, right? And, and that isn't a normal functioning immune system. And now, unfortunately, and this gets us into what's causing the allergies in the first place, with the environment changing, with our world changing, with us sort of evolving with the world changes, but not fast enough. We're still back in the times where when we saw a parasite or when a mosquito got on our skin, that was foreign. We started to have rashes and itches and have mucus so that we can get rid of that parasite or itch off that mosquito. So the allergic reaction is sort of foreign versus not foreign. But unfortunately for many people, one third of the people around the world, they respond as thinking that these natural substances like grass pollen or insects or foods, they're seen as foreign. And so that primeval response of itchiness, mucus, get rid of that parasite, get rid of that mosquito. It's the same thing that our body has this skewed response in allergies. And unfortunately it thinks the food is a foreigner and it thinks that food is like a parasite and it tries to get rid of it. And that's one of the reasons what's leading to the cause of allergies. I'll talk about that in a second as to why that immune system is primed that way, because it's not natural. You're right. But really, I guess the distinction is not foreign, non-foreign, because, you know, peanuts are foreign, right? They're non-human. Ragweed is, is non-human. It's really, you know, is this something which poses a threat, right? And needs to be destroyed versus is this something that, you know, is not a threat or even maybe something potentially beneficial, like a nutritious food, right? That's exactly right. And for many people, that seems confusing because when you and I were growing up and we ate the foods, they were naturally getting tolerized by our gut as we become infants and we taste different things from our breast milk or our moms and from the foods on the table. It's not seen as foreign, it's seen as nutritious. But unfortunately, there are several causes of food allergies now, and I could talk about them. This is global. This is not just a Western sort of world problem anymore. Food allergy doesn't see any boundaries. It doesn't see any socioeconomic boundaries. It's in children and adults. It's in all countries. Most of the countries that we thought had it were those that sort of talked about it first, like the United Kingdom and Australia and U.S. But now China has released its data. Japan has released its data. Korea, South Africa, European countries, Russia. 
So the going rate is between 5 to 8% of all children have food allergies diagnosed by a doctor. And now we know a lot more about adults and more and more adults also have what we call food allergies, real food allergies, not food sensitivities, but food allergies. And so now the reason is why, right? Why is this skewed relationship with the immune system? Why can some adults eat shrimp when they're children, but then when they turn 50, they get an allergy? Why do some children, are they born with milk allergy, but then they lose it along the way? And then they're able to drink milk later on in life. So we have studied this extensively with many people around the world because not just in California at Stanford, but this is a huge problem around the world. It's an epidemic. It's been called an epidemic. It is an epidemic and it is real. And with that in mind, I like to think about things in terms of the causes, just like you said, we need to figure that out first so that we could try to prevent it. So there's these D's I like to talk about. A lot of parents, when their child is born with food allergy, they'll say, well, is this in our genetic history? And it's not necessarily the genetic history. It's not just DNA. If you look at the rate of rise of food allergies, particularly nut allergies, it's doubling in some countries every 10 years. So that's way more than genetics. If it's just a generational effect, if it's just the mom passing it on to the baby or the dad passing it on to the baby, you'd expect it to double at least every 20 to 30 years. That's not happening. It's every 10. So we know that there might be a little bit of the DNA affecting it. If people have a big allergic history, yes, the child might have food allergies, but 65% of children born with food allergies have no allergies in their family at all. So something's going on with our environment. So let's talk about the environmental Ds. Australia found out that early on, if a child didn't have enough vitamin D in their diet, that that could affect and be associated with an increased risk of food allergies. The other D is dirt. We've found out, and as well as many others, that if you have a dog at home, if you play around in the right dirt, not the wrong dirt, we don't want people to get botulism or anything like that. But we talk about that in the book, that having good microbiome, making sure that you're eating good fermented foods, making sure that you treat your gut well and have natural foods and not a lot of preservatives, that leads to good gut health and that helps decrease the risk of food allergies. The other D is diversity of diet. And me and many others have found that it used to be, unfortunately, because of the scare of food allergies, well-meaning committees came together and said, let's avoid, avoid, avoid those things that are associated with food allergies. But in fact, it's probably better for a non-food allergic child and adult to eat those diverse foods in your diet, all those beautiful proteins, just like you said, Greg, let's not see them as foreign. And how do we do that? Well, we have to educate. Our immune system needs education. So does your brain. It needs to be educated. So that diversity of diet early and often with complementary feeding, with breastfeeding, it all works. We've noticed that those countries that never followed the rules, that didn't delay the uptake of peanut or egg or milk in the child's diet, those are the countries that have the least food allergy right now. So, you know, we kind of want to follow what our grandparents, my grandparents lived on a farm. My grandmother fed all her children with whatever was on the table. And so those countries tend to do better, probably because there's farm animals around as well. Now, we can't all live on farms. We have urban living. We have modern living now that has helped a lot of people. But we do need to find a balance of the environment and making sure that we help 
our health because our health is an active state. It's not just a passive state. So knowing what causes these allergies is important. Let's try to understand why the body sometimes sees these substances as allergic. And one of the last Ds are detergents and dry skin. So what happens now, a lot of babies are born with dry skin. And if they don't have dry skin when they're babies, they will develop dry skin over time because of the rough detergents that we use. And that's great. You know, we're all about trying to make sure we don't get viruses and COVID, but there's an element of being maybe too clean. And those detergents can sit, especially on the baby's skin, and cause rupture. So the baby's skin, even though we might not see it, it has holes in it. And the same thing for adults. The adult starts to break down their skin if they use so, too much potent detergents and, and chemicals on their skin. So with that, there's a rupture. And then little dust from the air, dust like food particles, can get into the skin and activate the allergic pathway, just like a mosquito would. So that's what has been now proven through many models in humans, many models in animals to say, this is one of the reasons that we see more food allergies in our adults and children because of this skin barrier issue, because of the disruption of the skin. So we say now through the skin, allergies can begin. Through the diet, allergies can stay quiet. So if you eat the foods, that actually tolerizes you versus if you put the foods on your skin, it can activate your system. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, when I read that about the detergents, I immediately went to see if I could find a detergent that didn't have the those enzymes you mentioned. And I couldn't find it. It was extremely difficult. I looked everywhere and almost everyone, first of all, they, they usually don't disclose ingredients, but then digging around, I had some trouble. So the idea here, at least this skin story, is that a child's first encounter with some of these proteins is through some kind of damaged skin as opposed to through the gut, then the immune system takes it to be the enemy rather than, than a friend. Whereas if they were to encounter this protein through the gut first, then this would educate the immune system as to its nutritive value, right? That it's not something to fight off. Exactly. You nailed it. You nailed it. Now, I'm sure you and I have plenty of stories where we smeared peanut butter all over mm -hmm. our skin and, you know, milk spilled all over. So if the skin is intact, if you have a nice skin barrier, nice and smooth skin, the, the food entering in doesn't happen, right? So, so sometimes that actually tolerizes you. But most importantly is that when your skin is sort of dry and disrupted, that's exactly what can happen, Greg. And we need to understand more about how to protect that skin barrier, how to get the foods into the body early and often so that this yin and yang doesn't develop into food allergies later on in life because it's such a disabling disease. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get into that some more, I just want to kind of backtrack and, and take a look at the historical data. So you mentioned in the book that ever since Galen, doctors have noticed that some people have these allergies. And, and again, this is not about like lactose intolerance for which there's a clear you know, genetic indicator. This is something which has existed for a long time. But how do we know, in fact, that this these numbers are going up? You mentioned a case early on in the book in the beginning of the 20th century, in fact, where the, th the therapy, the immunotherapy that you do in Stanford was tried out by someone, gosh, what was his name? Schofield. 
back in 1906, right? It's so, exactly. So he had identified someone with, with an allergy. And so how do we know, in fact, that this longitudinally has been on the rise and then, you know, cross-sectionally that it's, it varies when there's so many different kind of ways of measuring these things across time periods and geographies? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. Luckily, we have scientists that are really excellent at epidemiology. And my colleague, Ruchi Gupta, and epidemiologists around the world, like Katie Allen, and many others now have studied this extensively, as well as longitudinal data, like you're saying, because we don't want to say that something is rising if it's not. We don't want to overemphasize something and get people worried if that's not the case ever. You should always cross-check your data. And with this in mind, these epidemiologists looked at every which way to Sunday, and one person could say, well, you've gotten better at diagnostics, so perhaps that's the reason why you're seeing this rise. That's actually not true. We're using the same methods for diagnostics like skin prick testing that our grandparents had to go through when they were children. So it's not the diagnostics. I think the diagnostics are getting better, but that's not the main reason why it's increasing. You could also say, well, People aren't really checking, so how do you know that it's increasing in one population? Well, we are checking. It's been checked since the 1990s, very methodically, using the same devices and the same tools and the same questions. And so because you can compare apples to apples, people like Dr. Gupta and others have found that certain nuts, for example, are increasing, like the tree nuts. There are other people that say, well, wait a minute, there was no sesame allergies 20 years ago. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing a huge problem with sesame allergies, especially in Israel. Why is that? So the other problem is that it's increasing in nature, but we're also seeing new foods become part of that long list of typical food allergies that didn't exist before. So that these are the things that worry me that, of course, the epidemiologists will keep following The other thing that's happening is, it used to be, even 20 years ago, that it was highly likely that if a child was born with milk or egg allergies, that they would have a high likelihood of losing that. And that I could tell a patient, well, don't worry, if you have a milk allergy now for your baby, that baby has an 80% likelihood of losing that allergy when they're five. But now I have to switch the data and say 50%. Now, are food allergies, should we think of food allergies as being distinct from all of these these other allergies, right? So in the other discussions around allergies, we're always, you know, the most popular hypothesis now is this hygiene hypothesis, right? Where the cleanliness of our environment is essentially depriving us of immunological education, you know, when we're young. Is this just, is your story sort of an extension of that? And is it related to that? Is food allergy considered a discipline that's distinct from the other kind of areas of allergy, or is it all sort of a single discipline at this point? When we say discipline, I kind of think of it in terms of when people get educated or certified, like a board certified allergist, you know that that person that you're going to go to for your care knows about asthma, allergies to chemicals, allergies to insects, dogs, drugs, foods. So that as a discipline, we get trained in everything. 
And that's important for these allergic pathways. We also get trained in autoimmune disease. We get trained in a lot of other diseases because so many different areas of our medical field involve allergies, right? So we need to know all of the perspectives of allergies, including non-IgE allergies. I talked to you about the IgE food allergies, but there are also non-IgE food allergies that are responsible for food intolerances. So we have to know all that. So yes, it is one broad field to answer your question. Food allergy is just one subset of a disease. But when we talk about a discipline in terms of any one given patient, if I talk to my patients, a lot of them, they might have food allergy, but they also might have other allergies to environmental allergies to pollens, or they have asthma. So when I talk to my patients, yes, it's very helpful as a discipline to know all about asthma and allergies because the typical patient will have more than just a food allergy. And most importantly, too, they'll have more than just one food allergy. And anyone that has food allergy has a 25% chance of having anaphylactic event at some point in their life. So they also need to know that when they see an allergist, they need to keep seeing the allergist because their disease might change over time and they might develop new food allergies that they didn't know they didn't have yet. So it's a, a field where, for me, I love it because I get to see people grow and I get to make sure that we offer the best of therapies and prevention for families. So I've always been interested in this topic because you know, I'm always interested in kind of this, you know, nature versus culture debate, you know, like what are we born with as our instructional toolkit and what about our instructional toolkit do we have to kind of, you know, learn through through experience? And, and I think that conversation is normally we're thinking about kind of higher cognitive functions or maybe cultural ideas. But this idea that your body needs to, to learn, that your immune system needs to learn is one that I think may be underappreciated. Now, look, we've all gone through this pandemic and vaccines are essentially a way of educating your immune system as to, you know, what to attack. But, you know, we also need to educate our immune system as to like what not to attack. And we're not born, you know, knowing this. We're born with some kind of, I guess, primer kit, but we have to, you know, educate and train our, our immune system. And I guess that training and education was something that was more or less done unintentionally, but now maybe we need to be more intentional about it. I think that's that's kind of your message that we can't just simply rely on the organic, you know, you're born and, and you, you know, you do your thing and everything's gonna work out just great. We have to go in and not only vaccinate, but also kind of train in other ways. And and you actually mentioned this idea of, of like a packet of proteins that you could potentially give your child at an early age, like a, a little mixed bag of potential allergens, and that would kind of get them up to speed. And I, and I read about that and I was like, wait, why, why is this not like universal? Why doesn't every pediatrician, when the baby's born, why don't they get this as part of their pediatric education? Why doesn't the mother get this, you know, as part of part of her education? When did we forget that the immune system needed to be educated. When you talked about Schofield in 1906, I thought, wow, they must have had some insight into this educational process, you know, even back then. Exactly. They already noticed, you know, if you talk to some of the original peoples in the rainforest in Brazil, they have been practicing that if their children rub up against a plant and they get a little rash, those children start to eat the leaves of that food, you know, that plant little by little, and then they don't develop the rash. So not that everyone should do that at home. But importantly is there were many cases where 
people were seeing that if you start to get desensitized, like people beekeepers in Switzerland for hundreds of years, they noticed that if those beekeepers started the season and they kept on getting stung by bees, they wouldn't get bad reactions by the end of the summer. So I think people understood that, that somehow that normal, regular activity of exposure could desensitize someone. And Schoenfeld kind of took it for that one case in egg allergy, which I'm so glad that he had that sort of understanding because it had already been done for cat and dog and other insect allergies. And it's thanks to a lot of pioneers and the heroes in these clinical trials that we know what we know today. But you're right. You think, well, why isn't it obvious that we should diversify those foods early? And for example, here's the little packet of Spoonful One, right? It has 15 different foods and it's easy to eat and take. And I think what's happening is we're going against a tide that was unfortunately developed about 20 years ago when, when we started to see food allergies just a little bit. In the 1940s, the 1950s, people went the other way. They had like a reflex and well-meaning committees got together and they said, oh, well, we must avoid those foods because we don't want babies to have bad reactions. And unfortunately, if you actually look at the trend for food allergies, that decision was made and then boom, food allergies increased. And in those countries that didn't pay heed to that guideline, the food allergies stayed similarly. So not that we know all the cause, but we do know that that diversity of diets is important. And you're right. Now, because this product is out there and, you know, and all things being transparent, Stanford owns part of the patent. So I don't want to make, don't want to be in a conflict here. But most importantly is we're really excited that we have now some clues so that we can offer this to patients and parents and pediatricians so that they have the tools now available right in their back pocket, right on that commercial. You could just buy it online to be able to start training their child's gut. You don't want to take it for a child that already has a food allergy, but many people don't have food allergies when they're between zero and one years of age. So now that we have data, now that we have that information, let's use it to protect our kids and to actively promote health. I see analogies with this, between this approach to allergens and the approach to pathogens, right? So, you know, after Semmelweis and, and Pasteur triumphed and the germ theory kind of triumphed, you know, we moved towards these highly sterile environments, in particular in the birth environment, right, where we, we sanitized everything. And, you know, as we started moving towards more and more cesareans, we would deprive infants of, you know, exposure to their, their mother's biome. And I think it took a while for us to kind of move back towards this idea of balance that maybe, you know, there are bacteria <laughs> that are good and bacteria that are bad. And do you think those kind of movements in medicine were, were related? This idea that, hey, if this thing can potentially set off a, an allergic reaction, the best way to minimize that likelihood is to withhold that potential threat from the infants as long as possible. I mean, I, even my, my sister gave birth in 2010, and I was telling you before, before the podcast that her pediatrician told her, you know, keep your child away from peanuts, right, as long as possible. And, and I remember telling her then, I was like, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. And, and I'm trying to remember what I was reading back then in Science and Nature. And apparently the seminal piece didn't come out in New, New England Journal of Medicine until 2015, but you guys were definitely sniffing around this. And, and maybe you could tell the story of 
Gideon Lack, because I found this yes. fascinating because he was working with mice. And it was, you know, it, it's no weird how we make these observations about animals. Like we know that antibiotics cause weight gain in, in animals, but it never occurs to people that it might, you know, impact humans in the same way. So how did, how did this kind of in arbitrage happen across from animals to humans? I, that's in the book, we really wanted to talk about Gideon Lack's story because it's a perfect example of the fact that as a scientist, you're always curious and you always want to test your assumptions and you want to test the world's assumptions, right? In order to make progress, we have to question what happened in the past. So Gideon was doing this mouse model and uh, it's very hard to make a mouse allergic. They eat peanuts for a living, right? They eat nuts. It's part of who they are. So there's a mouse model in which you try to make the mouse allergic to eggs. But in order to try to make this mouse allergic to eggs, you have to go through all sorts of bad stuff, like with its stomach and invade it with cholera. And it's just not fun. And he was noticing that if he injected with egg and if he gave the mouse egg every day, they actually wound up not allergic whatsoever. In fact, protected against allergies. And so that gave him some insight and he kind of tucked it away in the recesses of his brain and it was just there during his fellowship. And then fast forward, he's in the United Kingdom studying at London and seeing patients, and, uh, guys in St. Thomas's Hospital right there, right across from the Thames, right near Parliament. It's a beautiful hospital. So it has a lot of history and he's seeing these food allergy patients in the UK, and he's seeing so much peanut allergy. It's really rising in the 80s and the 90s. And again, he's very curious, and he gives talks about peanut allergy throughout the world. He goes to Israel, and he asks his colleagues there, how many of you have peanut allergy that you're seeing in your clinics? And none of them raise their hands. He's very curious. What's going on? This is now fast forward to the year 2000. And what he learns, and it's now that I've learned from Gideon, I always ask everywhere where I go, every country, I ask the patients, the families, what do you feed your children early in life? Because Gideon had the insight to say, well, wait a minute, what are you feeding regularly to your children? Because he had that mouse model in the back of his brain. And they said, oh, yeah, we have this thing called Bamba, and it contains peanuts, and we give it to our children as teething tools. And then he made the connection. Well, maybe it is because you're feeding that peanut every day, not once in a while, not randomly, but consistently and regularly that you're able to not have peanut allergies. So that's what led him to that discovery. And then fast forward in the year 2000, he talked to the NIH in the U.S. And we, the NIH, gave him funding for this seminal study that proved that by against a control group, that by taking peanut every day, you could reduce your allergy risk by 80% for peanut. If you get peanut, it doesn't work for egg. If you get peanut, it doesn't work for cashew. It works for your specific food that you're trying to decrease. But you're absolutely right. That was a long story. I hope that was helpful to the audience because science is not always perfect. It's not always linear. You need to always question and you always need to do proper studies to know if something's going to work or not. That's right. And I do remember reading about the Bamba back then, and that's what kind of led me to think about that. But it does take a long time for these things to make it from the research environment into the the practice environment, right? I mean, doctors aren't aren't scientists generally there, but they rely on on the scientists and the research community for insight. And do you think it kind of takes 
too long for these things to to make it across that divide, or is is that right and proper that we you know we react slowly to new new research? Well, I can answer that in two ways. Of course, with COVID, we're really glad that things happen in light speed, right? We needed scientists to come to the table, and in fact, there's a new book called Light Speed by the two wonderful scientists that developed the mRNA vaccine for BioNTech. And, and that's helped the world. We never thought it would happen that fast and it did. And thank goodness it did. And now we have very many different vaccines, but we're still dealing with the epidemic because viruses are fast as well and they, they can change at light speed. So I think the science has to catch up with the problem that a person is dealing with or the globe is dealing with. And then science is also defined by whatever time and context you're working in. For example, with sulfa drugs. Initially in the 1930s, sulfa drugs were discovered to kill TB, right? It took nine years for the average medical doctor to know that they could use sulfa drugs to cure TB. Now, of course, there's resistance, so sulfa drugs don't work. But why did it take that long? So the people in Germany that knew sulfa drugs cured TB, they benefited immediately. But the people around the world, it took nine years to let them know that this was happening. So I think now with the internet, with the FDA, with regulatory bodies, we can go much faster and we should, but it has to be under the auspices of rigorous science. We can't just say that, for example, what happened with COVID, hydroxychloroquine works, right? That was not a randomized controlled trial. So to be able to have published opinion, it's one thing, but published peer review data is still the gold standard. And I know that takes time to get out to the public, but I think we can do a better job. Once a paper is rigorously looked at, let's let the public know about it right away. But published opinion, always sort of take with a grain of salt. Published data is a little bit higher standards. And then I think, Greg, for us, for you, for someone that has such great communication skills and talks from science to policymakers, I think scientists also need to do a better job making sure their work get out there to policymakers so that we can go at light speed so that people know about this around the world. And now I think there's avenues to do that. Well, of course, the, the amount of research that is devoted to a problem is usually a function of how seriously we take the problem. And we all take cancer very seriously. And, and I think maybe food allergies aren't taken quite as seriously, but I think it's important to highlight what impact these things have on people. So it's not simply, oh, okay, I, I can't eat peanut M&Ms. You talk in the book about the enormous suffering that these individuals experience and, and that their families experience, you know, bullying and anxiety and so forth that's very long lasting. I mean, do you think that people fail to appreciate how disruptive these things can be? I think the world is changing. I, I think after having people see what people went through with COVID, I think my food allergy patients had been living that kind of life for a long time, not going out on airplanes, not going out to restaurants, being fearful of anything that you touch that could be contaminated with a food that could hurt you. And the same analogy, not perfectly analogous, but that's what happened three years ago. Well, actually two years ago with COVID, right? That we were so worried. And so people could hopefully live the life of someone with food allergy a little bit more easily. But I initially, 20 years ago, when I got involved in this, and there have been books written by other patients that 20 years ago had bad allergies and they just were not taken seriously. And unfortunately, because it's now an epidemic, 
fortunately, now people take it more seriously. But yet, I think this takes education of people as well, that they should know in all humility, this is a terrible disabling disease. People live with it and they have to live really carefully and they can't go out to the same functions that you and I might have been able to either as children or as adults. So that the fact that there's the hope and promise of therapy now is fantastic. I'm so glad about that. But that's going to take time to make sure it gets out there and is democratized. In the meantime, people do change their lifestyle. And what I find as a doctor is that when children have the food allergy, a lot of parents are able to kind of siphon that off and protect the child. So that can be somehow managed. Now, schools have it rough. Grandparents have it rough. Traveling issues have it rough. But then, unfortunately, when they go to college, that's a tougher transition. Or when they go to the workplace, you can't always protect your children. So that's where a lot of anxiety comes into play. And the mental stress around food allergy, I think, is probably undervalued and understudied. And we need to help support both the families and the patients more because it's a very anxiety-provoking and appropriately so disease. And so people should carry an epinephrine pen, obviously, if they have a reaction, but the random reactions are there. And labeling laws are very helpful, but it is disabling. People have to live in fear of eating or accidentally eating something. And of course, we should not to diminish the, the suffering of the people who actually have it. It impacts the people who don't have it as well. So, you know, if this yes, epidemic becomes right. too common, we can say goodbye to peanuts in most restaurants and eggs and, and dairy and, and uh, on airplanes and so forth, right? And it's, it's going to impact everybody. But before, you know, we've talked a bit about prevention, but I think what's most exciting now is this idea that you could treat and potentially cure these food allergies. I think people used to think this was something that you had to spend the rest of your life with. And the work you're doing at Stanford is really about kind of re-educating the immune system. And this technique, we mentioned people had thought of this before, but it hadn't really been put into practice in any kind of widespread way until now. So could you talk about like, how did, what's the origins of this new treatment? What led to this idea of immunotherapy? Yeah. Well, I was one of many people that do immunotherapy. This idea, like you mentioned, came up a hundred years ago, at least that we know of that's in print where uh, Dr. Schoenfeld helped treat a, a boy with egg allergy and giving little bits of egg over time to, like you say, re-educate the immune system, reprogram so that if your programming, you know, somehow went awry early on in life and you developed a food allergy, then you can reprogram. That's the beauty of it too. I talk to my patients about building that immune muscle and that you stretch and you build that muscle every day by regularly eating small amounts of that food and you can become desensitized. So many people went before me, wonderful researchers and mentors in Europe and, in, and all throughout the world in the U.S. And so I think for Stanford, what happened was I was talking about food allergy as an allergist and a patient and her mom came up to me after Grand Rounds. And again, I, I think as people, we get inspired by patients and the public. And, and I think that's really important to make sure that people listening to your podcast and the public knows that, you know, talk to people. If you have a disease, whether that be food allergy or not, go knock on someone's door and say, what's being done about this? Because that's what happened to me. This mom came up to me and said, what are you doing about multiple food allergies? It's not just peanuts, not just milk. There are 
many children that have multiple food allergies, more than just one food, and they're suffering a lot because they can't eat a lot of foods. And so I said, you know, you're absolutely right. We should think about how to treat that. And so I talked to my colleagues who had been treating the singular allergies, and then I talked to the FDA. The FDA was so helpful. And then we put together a program to make sure we could be safe and effective to treat multiple food allergies. And we started that in 2009, and then we grew. And I'm so grateful that it took a team effort of many people and scientists and patients and heroes and pioneers to now, from 2009 now to 2022, we've seen over 4,000 people improve thanks to clinical studies. We still don't have an approved drug, and that's another thing we got to work on. But importantly is that now, fast forward, we're at a place where we can give therapy, and that's exciting. Now, how widespread do you think this will become? I mean, do you think that anybody will be able to go to any healthcare facility anywhere in, in the country and begin one of these treatment plans? Is How intensive is it, and how much work is it, right? I mean, do you have to go every week uh, for two years or, or is, is, is the cost going to be prohibitive in terms of time and effort and, and medical labor? Well, great question. So the key thing is for any drug to be approved by the FDA and the EMEA in Europe and the MHRA in the UK, what's great is that once it gets approved by the regulatory agencies, then the third-party payers, that insurance reimburses, right? So that the cost is not prohibited. Right now, there are private clinics that are doing this and the cost can be prohibitive. But as you and I spoke about before, there's no boundaries for socioeconomic strata, right? That the important thing here is that we do need to make sure this gets out to everyone because a lot of people have food allergies, adults and kids, as well as they're around the world. So the program is very low and slow. There's a company, Aladapt, that now has a similarly structured uh, flower that you can get treated for up to uh, five foods at once. It has 15 foods in it. So that's really nice and personalized based on what the person's allergic to. They're already in phase two studies. And that's terrific to know as a patient. So it's very low, it's very slow. And luckily, because we have all this that has come before with thousands of patients, we know how to dose it carefully and effectively. So if people come back to the clinic every two weeks, every month, to get updosed, that's probably what'll happen for the first year. And then they will be desensitized. So it doesn't take your whole life. It is the first year is a very active part of the therapy, just like any treatment course, you wanna work with a doctor and do this carefully. But because allergists already do this for dog allergies and cat allergies, and they're giving shots, for example, routinely in their clinics. This is not a big mindset switch for a therapeutic regimen. And it's not a big mindset switch for a lot of people with allergies because typically they need to go see their allergist on a regular basis. So we hope that this becomes part of the rubric for allergists across the world. It's something that is very doable, and most importantly, it needs to go through rigorous testing. But luckily, there's already publications to show that there's no reason to believe that this would not work. We want to make sure that we can get through the regulatory pathway quickly so that this can become available to everyone in a democratized fashion because the FDA and the regulatory agencies take this disease so seriously, as they should. Most companies that are moving forward in this space of food allergy have gotten fast track status and breakthrough designation. So that allows things to go through faster in the FDA, for example. Now, 
realistically, given the economics of healthcare, would we need to have a patented drug? Would we need to have something supported by the economic resources of a big pharma company in, in order to get this through? Because, I mean, you talk about how you have patients, they swallow a peanut every day as a prophylactic. And obviously, you know, Planters doesn't have a patent and each peanut costs like a penny, right? So are we going to need to see some kind of actual drug developed that has a patent in order to kind of really get the ball moving on this? Absolutely. You have to be so careful, right? Because you don't want to do this at home because uh, you have to know exactly how much protein. It's not just mixing up an egg and giving a little bit here and there. Like you have to know exactly what one milligram of protein looks like, because we know that that's what you need to do to start. And then increasing it by 25% each week. How do you do that? How do you dose that? Well, that takes a company making sure that you have a standard product that you know is not degraded, that doesn't have some bacteria in there that could really mess up the egg, right? So that takes really well-manufactured, uh, um, qualified people that know how to manufacture these drugs. You're right. It is seen as a drug. The FDA sees it as a drug. And instead of having these sort of clinics that are charging for it, we want to get it out there to the public and it's going to take that type of care. So yes, to manufacture the drug in that way in small doses, increasing it ever so slightly, that takes a large company to be able to put on those studies and then manufacturing it and using it carefully for allergists. But that can be completely done. It's being used for other immunotherapy, for dust mites, for example, for grass allergies. So this is something in the rubric of the way that our drugs are approved in our society. And I think most importantly is that we want to make sure it's available for patients and that it's available for all patients, not just those people that can afford it right now. Can you imagine a day when this might be something Invisalign, right? Where you just get a packet mailed to your home every couple of weeks and, and you just kind of do the treatment? Or will this always be something that needs kind of medical supervision given the hazards associated with it? Yeah. People tend to have like mild rashes, mild itchiness. You'd want to do this in a doctor's office because sometimes you can have a, more of a reaction like wheezing. It's the same thing when I get allergy shots, for example, and I give allergy shots to cats allergic people. I want to see them in my clinic. They want to come to clinic. I don't want them to have any reactions. And I also want to make sure that I updose. For example, here's a little packet of the powder. This is the medium dose of the powder for people with multiple food allergies, but it's just a little blister pack. And that's what's given to them in the doctor's office, for example. This is still in the research phase, but it's pretty easy to take. You're absolutely right. There might be some patients that could do it at home under telecommunication, telehealth. That's being done a lot now, but we want to make sure that we protect the safety of the patients. That's number one. So I'm very grateful that these opportunities are coming up to make it easy for patients and to make sure there's access to health care and to make sure that it's something that's democratized to everyone. Well, very exciting stuff. Immunotherapy, it's, it's a fascinating field, but as we know, an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of Cure. I heard your dean speak, Dean Miner speak a while back, and, and he said, we got to get out of the sick care business and get into the health care business. So if we can nip these allergies in the bud. No, Dr. Miner was totally right. Yeah. If we nip these allergies in the bud, then nobody will need the immunotherapy. That's right. Be proactive and reactive. There's enough of an epidemic that we need to help people with therapy, but there's enough knowledge now to make sure we can prevent. So that's great. How amazing in my lifetime 
to be able to have a disease in which we know both parts of this. It's pretty humbling, but also it makes me even more inspired that we got to do this. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining me. The book is um, The End of Food Allergy featuring immunotherapy. If you have a food allergy, if you have a, um, a child with a food allergy, I highly recommend that you check this book out. And if you're just interested in health, the immune system, and uh, history of science, check it out. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thank you, Greg. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com.